0: And Father, as we come this morning, uh, in those moments, in the next, in the next moment, God, when we find our hearts feeling fearful or uncomfortable or, or just wanting to just kind of push it aside, Holy Spirit, will you gently, gently prompt and bring us back? And ask God what work might you be wanting to do. God, help us to be attentive to the way that we're responding, the way that we're hearing. God, and, and and please, Holy Spirit, we just want to pray and ask God that you would, you would gently, firmly, just come and 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 nudge us towards, as Carlton just saying, a greater level of surrender, a greater level of release. So we just. Want to ask you that, God, as we handle this very challenging topic of radical hospitality? Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, brother Carlton, for that. Before we jump in this morning, news to share: uh, Pastor uh, Caitlin had her uh, baby. Uh, yeah, last uh, yeah last last Monday, and uh, she's doing well at home. Jonah Chul, uh, Kim Sobek is uh, doing well, or Sobek Kim is doing well, and so I want to encourage you guys to reach out to her, encourage her, let her know that she is in your uh, thoughts. And uh, for those of you that are part of her small group, you guys obviously already know, I want to encourage you guys to, again, love on your pastor well as, um, as she rests and recuperates. Oh, I was sharing with Carlton and a couple other people, I, I just, after the nine o'clock service, I just felt completely spent and drained. I mean, some of it is just had a kind of a tough week, but also this topic is just kicking my butt, Carlton. This topic is kicking, it really is, and I think there's a level of spiritual drainage that I'm experiencing, so hopefully I'll be able to kind of get through. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I was going to say, hopefully I'll be able to get through this service. I'm preaching. I'm, I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> he'll have to drag me out of here. For me, to, um, We're talking about radical hospitality and uh, literally the term that we've tried to unpack and there's so much to deconstruct before we could even come to grips with what this is and how to live it. The word literally is phallosinia, phallosinia in Greek, which literally means love of strangers. This is not love of friends, it's not love of family, it's not love of people close to you. It's strangers. It's love. So there's giving and there's sacrifice involved. This is not comfortable, convenient. not will come around this theme again and again. And it's strangers. It's the people that you and I in our culture consider the other. So a simple maybe succinct definition that I've come around maybe, and I waited four weeks to do this, is this gracious provision for the other. Radical hospitality is gracious provision for the other. But in order for us to come live this, the beginning point is we have to be ruthlessly honest about who is the stranger in our lives. Who is the other? Come on guys, I've been saying this for four weeks. If we don't start there and are rigorously honest, we can't move forward. Who is the stranger? Who, who are you afraid of? Who are you unsure of? Who are you suspicious of? Who am I? And as I said, in a room like this or in churches, For some of us, it's someone of another race, ethnicity, some of another socioeconomic class. For some of us, it's another uh, person of another sexual orientation. For some of us, it's a person of another faith or no faith system. We all have people in our lives that we're suspicious of, afraid of, and unsure of, and the Bible has the audacity to go, here's what it means to follow the way of Jesus and be radically hospitable like him. You love that person. You love that person. And here's the thing, if you sit there and go, okay, then you're not hearing my (laughs) sermons. Because if you're really hearing this and you want to live this, immediately, first thing is there's a deep pause, like, are you sure? Are you sure that's what the Bible says? Are you sure that's what Jesus says? Because this is hard for me. Is it hard for you? Thank you for being honest. It's hard because we live in a culture of fear. We began, that we live in a a culture of fear. And we know that fear hijacks relationships, keeping us in this sort of safe, homogenous bubble with the false sense of security. Here's another thing fear does. Fear chokes out love. That's why 1 John 3 says, perfect love casts out fear. But in order for us to be people of love, we have to face our fears. You and I have to be rigorously honest about what am I afraid of? Who am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of them? We have to begin there. We have to begin there. And by the way, for some of us, hopefully we are at that place where we could begin to share with our community, like honestly, because we can't move forward otherwise, here's what I'm afraid of, here's what I'm suspicious, here's what I'm unsure of. We have to be, And we've said hospitality is a state of the heart before it becomes a practice. I know that church like ours, you guys wanna go, give me a list of things to do, but we have to begin here. Is there fear in there? Is there suspicion in there? Is there jealousy in there? Two weeks ago, is there unforgiveness in there? Because when our hearts are filled with fear, ignorance, suspicion, you guys, come on, this is like common sense, you can't welcome and embrace, whether it's a marriage, or church community. Who are you unsure of? Who are you afraid of? And we've said this for three weeks, four weeks. Proximity maybe changes things. Shortest distance between two people is a conversation. Conversation, a meal. By the way, in case you're going, that dude, or that? There's no way I could have a meal at the table in invitation proximity, and I'm reminded. And we're going I'm gonna point to this a lot today. The Lord's Supper. We're gonna do this today. The Lord's Supper. Think about this. Two thousand years ago, Jesus is sitting, at the last meal with his disciples. Who is sitting at that table? There's Judas. Who is sitting at that table? The rest of the clueless disciples. Who is sitting at that table? There's Peter who will deny him three times in a matter of hours. Jesus' radical hospitality culminates in him opening his table. Come on. Who is your stranger? Who is your stranger? Who is my stranger? If we can't be radically honest about that, can't move forward. Rack hospitality, love of strangers. Um, in case you were wondering if this is some, some, you know, random thing that, uh, you know, I just kind of picked out. It's, it's a theme th- woven throughout the New Testament as if to say, you want to follow Jesus? Hospitality. Let me just give you some examples, Okay. We don't have a lot of time for these. So Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and share with the Lord's people who are in need. Parents, sharing isn't just for toddlers. You gotta practice what you preach. It's amazing how easily those words come out of my mouth to my kids. Gotta share, gotta share. And then I look at my life. I'm like, hmm. Practice hospitality, here's another one, First 1 Timothy 3.1. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, that's a pastor or an elder a leader in the church, okay? Paul is giving instructions to Timothy and saying, here's what it means to be an overseer, It's desires a noble task, and then he lists qualifications. Check out the qualifications for church leaders and pastors. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, is that important to you? Would you say that's important? That a pastor leader to be faithful to his wife? The answer is yes. We think, yeah, that's very important. And then we keep going. Self-controlled? Yeah, that's important. Uh, respectable? Yes. You might not want to follow me if I was not. Uh, and then there's, of course, hospitable, which we just by and they're able to teach. Yeah, yeah, you better be able to be a good preacher. Back up. Hospitable. It was so important that Paul says, anybody that wants to be a leader in the church, and then of course, 1 Peter 4, 2. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. By the way, do you notice how often love and hospitality is connected? Jeez. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And immediately, I'm reminded of course, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians where he says, God loves a cheerful giver. You You know, there's some of us like, and honestly, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to read God's mind, but honestly, I think when we do that, God goes, keep it, keep it, keep it, just, you know why? He doesn't need our money. He, he owns it anyway. He owns it all. My attitude matters. And interestingly, Paul says, here's how you and I could give joyfully. He calls to mind grace again, gospel. Because in 2 Corinthians, this is what he says. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. In other words, Paul says the only way to give generously and not grumbling is to know that he has been gracious to you and Peter ties the same thing with hospitality and he says essentially, if you don't understand grace in the gospel, you will never be hospitable cheerfully. Here's the reason why, listen, you can't forgive someone if you haven't been forgiven. You can't accept someone who disagrees with you if you don't understand that he accepted you and trust you and me. We were very disagreeable. We can't welcome people unlike us if you and I recognize, don't recognize, he welcomed us. We can't be hospitable at a great cost to us if you don't recognize that we are the recipient of the most costly hospitality. Are you hearing me? You'll never live this way of Jesus, of hospitable love strangers, if you don't recognize I am the recipient of the most incredible hospitality. And the degree to which we recognize that is the degree to which grumbling turns into gratitude. And gratitude is at the center of a hospitable heart. Gratitude, deep sense of (laughs) thank you, is a thing that will cause you to open your homes, open your wallets, open your resources, your time to receive the stranger. A couple of things I noticed about gratitude though this week. Can I just share with you? Is that okay? One, I'm recognizing there's nothing worse than knowing you should feel gratitude, but not feeling it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know how you walk around sometimes, like it happened to me this week. I I am so discontent all the time. Anybody relate? I'm constantly grumble, 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 constantly. And you know what? I have nothing to complain about. I mean, honestly. So this week, week, as I was preparing this sermon, I went into my... Kids' room and I saw my kids who are healthy. Had a great conversation with the wife that loves me unconditionally and supports me. Church family with amazing people. And I have so much to be grateful for, yet I wasn't feeling it. And I felt like a big jerk. Can anybody relate? Here's the thing, though. You know what I'm realizing also? Gratitude doesn't come because you feel like you ought to be grateful. Gratitude journals may work for you. It don't work for me. (laughs) Every single day, I am thankful. I think Oprah might have mentioned that. Nothing against Oprah. But gratitude journals every day, that doesn't work for me to be grateful. I, I ought to be grateful for these things doesn't make me feel. You know what makes me feel gratitude? It's going to the cross every day. Going to the cross every single day. By the way, you go, why do you need to go to the cross every day? Because I forget every day. I forget every single day. So I need to go to the cross every single day and I need to remind myself, you are the recipient of the most incredible grace. You are the recipient of the most incredible, you are an enemy of God. Rebe- you are an enemy of God, hostile towards God in rebellion. And He, out of grace, made you a son. Hey. Right. It's that, guys. It's that. That is the only thing in every single day of my life that causes me to feel genuine gratitude. It opens up space inside of me. and when. There's less of me in me when I'm grateful. There is less of me in me. When I'm not grateful, I am constantly going, why aren't you doing, why aren't you? It becomes all about me. Can anybody relate? Can I say the last thing? I don't know a single person That came to a deep state of gratitude without suffering and hardship. I will say it again. I've never met a single Christian, most people, frankly, who ever came to a deep state of gratitude without some hardship, suffering. Why? Because hardship, suffering is the leading edge of joy. Can I get a name? So people, listen, that have a deep sense of abiding, just gratitude, at some point in their lives, you go, whoa, that was hard. It was hard. That was hard. It was hard. And they all go, but God kept me. I experienced his faithfulness. Don't harden your heart against suffering. Do not harden your heart against suffering and hardship. Are you hearing me? Do not give in to the cynical, pessimistic hardening of heart when hardships come. Because you might be blocking your life to the path of deep gratitude and joy. The text we've been in is Hebrews chapter 13. And I asked a couple people, I said, did that, did that sound redundant and review? Some of it I need to just go over because the main thing that I wanna to emphasize today comes at the end. Here we go, Hebrews chapter 13, verse one. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, So not forget to show hospitality to strangers. That's where we get the word hospitality from. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And philozenia literally had a a practical meaning. And it literally meant to bring someone into your home. And the author of Hebrews and what he's alluding to is Genesis 18 when Abraham, Meets three perfect strangers and he brings them into their home only to recognize the next day that he was entertaining who? God and his angels, right? And we've been saying for three weeks that in that act of radical hospitality, of loving the stranger, first and foremost, the Benedictine monks remind us that people we encounter every day aren't incidental to our lives. there's There's no accident, incidental encounter of people. There's this powerful truth that God might come in the stranger. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And say the following with me, I was a what? Stranger. Can you, can you actually for a moment think that when you walk past a stranger, you might be walking past Jesus? That when you shut your heart out to the stranger, you might be shutting your heart out to Jesus. Jesus. His words, not mine. It just blows my mind how often that you and I in the city of Chicago will go about every single day and completely oblivious, oblivious to the people we encounter But not only does God come to us in the stranger, but God also does something through us. And I've quoted this New Testament theologian for for three weeks on one last time. He says this about what what, what the act of hospitality does. For Christians, the expectation is that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. This expectation lends to hospitality a sacramental quality. Here's what we're doing at the end of service today, okay? I'm gonna break this bread and I'm 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 gonna share this wine. And if you're a Christian, you and I act have the audacity to believe that in these simple elements, in these simple elements, that God's grace comes to us. That you experience God's presence. And I share this morning, the powerful, and the most powerful things for me when I serve communion is on Sundays when people approach and there are people who weep. Because this isn't just like bread. They literally walk down and they sense God's spirit. That's what we believe that in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper, that in these common elements of bread and wine and juice, that God's grace and presence and, and this theologian says that in the simple act of hospitality, that means a coffee with somebody, or inviting your, your new neighbor into your home for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, or, or, or going to the hospital to sit with your your friend roommate, as they wait for a test, in that simple act, the thing that happens here happens there. Hi. and when you when you realize this, you guys, it changes your perspective and you realize. You realize that in the ordinary, mundane things of life, there are opportunities and glimpses in which we can be conduits of God's grace and presence. Is that, is that powerful to anybody? And, 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 and if you've done this over the years, you recognize that you're constantly then just looking and saying, how could I be a conduit of God's hospitality by the use of my time? By the... And here's the thing that I realized, okay? I didn't share this a 9 o'clock service, so you'll get to hear it. In my mid-twenties, when I was growing into a pastor-preacher, I, for two years, served on a small town island called Guam in the middle of the South Pacific. I did youth ministry there. It's two years. I am at that age, 25, at that time, where I'm going, I will change the world, and the way I will change the world is I will preach phenomenal sermons, and people will be, whoa, you know? So So two years, I gave my heart and soul. This is the last week I'm in the island. I'm about to come back to the States, okay? And this guy named Danny says, Pastor Peter, can we meet? Sure. I'm sitting at a McDonald's, like at midnight. We're sitting at a McDonald's. We're sitting there and talking, reminiscing. And he goes, I just got to tell you, you know what I'm most grateful for? And I'm going, God, tell me. I know. You're going to tell me about all those incredible sermons i preached. I'm 25. I was, I, by the way, I, there's like half of the congregation right at 25. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for him to go, that sermon, when you did that? He goes, he goes do you remember that time when my parents were going through a divorce? Do you remember that time how I just said, can we just meet up and talk? And remember how you brought me to this McDonald's right here? And he just sat and listened for two hours. Can I be totally honest? Part of me was really mad and disappointed. (laughs) I'm so stupid and immature. I will never forget that conversation. thing is, I didn't even remember that conversation with them at the McDonald's. Here's the thing, what you do to welcome strangers, you may not ever remember, but they do. And they will never forget. Never forget. I challenged you guys a couple weeks ago and saying, if you're serious about this, Be prepared to have your life interrupted a lot. Can I get an amen for interruptions? Because creating space for the stranger, you can't do this if you wake up in the morning and go, here's the rest of my day planned out to every minute. You have to get up and you have to approach the day from the perspective of God. I am open to you coming to me in the form of the stranger. And the thing that you will realize quickly is this, love is inconvenient. Love is inconvenient, ask all the married couples. Love is inconvenient, because you know why? Because loving somebody basically requires a posture that says, God, I am willing to have you interrupt me with people based on your agenda and their needs rather than my comfort and my convenience. And last time I checked, convenience and comfort are not values of the kingdom of God. They're not. So if you are serious about this, be ready to be convenienced a lot, but in that convenience, you might recognize the heart of Jesus. Good Lord, we love convenience and comfort, don't we? Good Lord, we love convenience and comfort. You can't be radically hospitable in that way. Maybe, maybe, maybe the question is not how dangerous is that stranger. Maybe the question is how dangerous will I become if I do not open my heart to the stranger. Maybe the real question is what happens to my heart if I choose against hospitality. What happens to my heart if I choose against hospitality and do not open my heart to the stranger? Among us. Real quickly. Really quickly. Practically. Here's what I've challenged you to do. And don't listen to this as, ah, I heard that. Ask yourself. Evaluation. Am I doing that? Number one, real quick. And then I need to get to the last part. Observe. What does it mean? To practice that observe. Pay attention. Please get off your phones. Please, if I see you on the street, in your community, and I see you doing this, I'm going to come in... I don't know. I'm just hug you. Or do something. <laughs> I'll just give you a good hug. Take, and then take your phone. But anyway, just, just come on, guys, 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 guys. We're like counterculture. We want to be radical. You want to be radical in the city of Chicago? Get off your stupid phone and observe and pay attention to people. Observe. Watch. And you'll be amazed. And how quickly you'll notice she's hurting, he's confused, maybe they're lost, maybe they need company, maybe they need friendship, maybe they're lonely. Please get your head out of you know what and observe, number two, invite people. (laughs) Create a welcoming environment, work, create a welcoming environment, work, this kills me because we think hospitality about this big massive thing in Pinterest, and no, radic hospital looks like this at your work, in your cubicle, in your desk. How are you as a follower of Jesus? Is that place a welcoming place where people who are confused come and find company? Is your workplace, where you're at, a place where truth could be told in grace and love? Is that place where those who are discouraged and disillusioned could come and find encouragement? Are you living in such a way you say, Jesus, your Lord, not just when I'm at church but when I'm at work? Your work environment could be one of the most powerful places in which you're saying, I want to be hospitable. Are you doing that? Fourth, invite people into your home. Self-explanatory, however, I'll say this, I'll say this. When you invite people into your home, please don't look at them as projects. Do you want to be a project? Does anybody, any one of us want to be a project? The answer, church? No, so why would we want to do that to other people? Bring them into your home to simply love on them and walk with them in the broken, in in this world. Evangelism is not trying to talk people into following Jesus, it's simply creating space where they could encounter Jesus for themselves. Invite people into your spiritual home. Invite, this, invite people into worship service. Just small groups, ministry serving. Next. Please host small groups when is given. Next. Be an usher and a greeter at our church. <laughs> Listen, at some point in the service, they get this for like 45 minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? They get shouted at for 45 minutes. So make sure that when they come in, there's a smiley face greeting them. Right, next. <laughs> Hospitality team. Join the hospitality team, and then lastly, lastly, I have to get to this, and this is where I wanted to spend the rest of the day, and maybe it's gonna be the most radically sort of altering perspective, because the last aspect of hospitality that the museum talks about is when you give your time, talents, and tithes to ministries out in the city that work with the poor, the refugee, the immigrant, the weak, and the marginalized. Let me put it this way, and I give credit to Josh Lobs, who oh, I talked to a little bit back there. I said, what would you hear today? In sermon, he said, I heard that hospitality is not, I wait and you come to me. Radical hospitality is, I go out. I go out. Where do you get that from, Peter? Here it is. We just keep reading Hebrews as he talks about hospitality. So after he says verse two, entertain strangers, verse three, continue to remember those in prison as if you yourself were together with them in prison. By the way, does this sound familiar? Visit them in prison. He visited me, Matthew 25, Jesus. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering, mistreated literally right there means the oppressed or victims of social injustice. And so all of a sudden, you guys, who is the stranger? And, the, and this is why the anti goes, who is the stranger that we're supposed to welcome hospitable? It's not just a classmate or next door neighbor coworker. All of a sudden, the stranger, the stranger, the stranger that we are called to welcome becomes people who are oppressed, victims of injustice, poor, the marginalized, the weak, the refugee, the Muslim, the Hindu, people without power, people without connections, people without network in this world, people that our society and our culture have excluded, and God says, that's who, but what about my friends, that's who, but what about my family, no, that's who, that's who who you're to welcome, and you have we, we, we have a hard time understanding how radical this was. You think, you think right now in 2008 that's radical. This is a culture in which everything is run through the patronage system. In the Roman, Greco-Roman world, everything centered around what can I do for you to get you to do something for me? How could I earn your favor so that you could ultimately do a favor for me? How could I scratch your back? Everything, the entire society is built on this mentality that says, I do something for you so that I could benefit. And the church comes along. Do you know where this rose from? A lot of historians think that the communion, the Lord's Supper, was part of something called the agape meal where people met in people's homes and they had a feast and brought food. I think it was like a potluck type of thing. And they, 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 they had this feast meal. The thing that was so radical about the early church though was in these homes got Agape meals, you had someone's master and their slave at the same table. You had, you had the rich and the poor at the same table. You had men and women At the same table. And the message that the early church sent was this. The message is we are followers of Jesus, which means radical hospitality, which means we welcome people with no thought of how does this benefit me. You guys, just even this week, talking to some 20-somethings in our church and hearing about their work environment, they said one of the hardest things, Pastor Peter, about that, Is that we live in a society where unless you operate from that perspective of, I got to kind of, how do I gain favor and network, you you are conditioned to seek out the cool, the networked, the wealthy, the ones with the resources, because that's the only way to get ahead. And then kingdom of God comes along and says, here's what it looks like in the kingdom under the rule and reign of Jesus. You don't go looking for angels. You don't go looking for, how can you benefit? You go looking for strangers. And the process you'll find that you've been entertaining an angel along. In the kingdom, you guys, we don't base relationships transactionally. How can you benefit me? What can you do for me? That's anathema to the gospel. Can I get an amen? In the kingdom of God, we don't pursue relationships based on what can you do for me, how can you open doors for me. In the kingdom of God, we serve and we love people with no thought of how does this benefit me. I'm not in the equation. In the kingdom... We literally intentionally look out for the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the excluded, people who literally can't do anything for us. And we serve them. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Who's at our tables? Who's at our coffee shops? Who are we meeting with? Who's our network? What does it look like to be hospitable to the weak, the marginalized, the mistreated? The author of Hebrews tells us. We just keep reading. Verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and then he says, don't forget to do good and to share. That's that word again. Just can't get away from it. And to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And Eugene Peterson's the message translation of the Bible says this in verse 16. Make sure that you don't take things for granted. How many of us take things for granted? All the time. And go slack in working for the common good. Share what you have with others. God takes particular pleasure in acts of worship. But a different kind of sacrifice that takes place in the kitchen, in the workplace, and on the streets. Don't you love that? I love that verse. Because what it reminds us is this. Lastly, radical hospitality is working for the common good. Being hospitable to the oppressed, being hospitable to those victims of injustice is working for the common good. And I just want to say that common good and working for the common good is not some political ideology, it's at the heart of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Working for the common good, and we'll see what that means here in a moment. Working for the common good. And by the way, did you notice what the author of Hebrews called working for the common good? He calls it worship. He calls it a sacrifice of praise. True worship. True worship isn't just about singing songs on a Sunday morning, true worship isn't just about offering prayers, true worship happens in here so that we will be equipped to go out there into the kitchen, into the workplaces, into the streets for the glory of God. Somebody clap to that. True worship doesn't stay here. True worship of God propels me to go, how can I be an agent of your kingdom in my kitchen, in my workplace, and out on the street? True worship that God delights in has deep political, social implications. The main passage, the main passage that talks about this in the Old Testament, and I'll flesh out, you guys, practical implications of what this means, is Isaiah 58. Anybody else love Isaiah 58? Isaiah 58 is one of these passages that I've loved, held, and anchored myself for the last, like, nine years. Because in Isaiah 58, more than any other passage in the entire Old Testament, God says to his people, you and me, here is what worship is. Here's what true worship looks like. Here's what delights me. Here's what I delight in. Isaiah 58 verse one. Shout it aloud, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. You need to understand who he's talking to. He's talking to people. He's talking to people who are diligent in their worship Observers. What do I mean? They're in church every Sunday. They're in small groups every week. They're tithing. And they're doing this day after day. It's not once in a while. It's continue. He's talking to them. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what's right has not forsaken the commands of God. These are people, church, community, but not only that, their personal morality is spot on. Don't have sex outside of marriage. You know, they don't lie, they don't cheat on their taxes. They're the kinds of people that maybe many Christians in America be like, wow, you're a really good Christian. Unfortunately, God doesn't stop there. He says about them, look, guys, look, look. they ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come to them. Why have we fasted, they say, though, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, God's not answering their prayers. They're in church every Sunday in small groups. They're praying, and God isn't answering their prayers. Why? Listen to what he says. But on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. What? I thought you were talking about worship. I thought you were talking about Christian life. Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen, verse 5, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? Be really clear. This is God going, this is worship. This is what delights me. To loose the chains of injustice. To set the oppressed free. This will not go down well in most churches in America. Our personal morality is spot on. We go to church, we're doing the tithe. And God goes... My heart. It's all good. It's not unimportant. But my heart and worship that I delight in. Do something about the injustice. Do something about those who are oppressed. Do something who are in captivity. Justice. This word that's so prevalent nowadays, even in Christian circles, justice. Justice has nothing to do with individual rights. I want my justice. Not what the Bible's talking about. Justice. Justice, at the end of the day, is about shalom. In order to understand concept of justice in the Old Testament, you need to understand that when God creates the world, He creates the world in such a way that all these relationships are interdependent, interwoven, interconnected. God creates the world unlike what Western individuals' minds think. God creates the world in such a way that our relationship with God is right, our relationship with each other is right, and all of creation is right. And in those right relationships, there's flourishing, there's wholeness, there's peace. The metaphor that the rabbis used was that of a fabric, a fabric which has thousands and thousands of threads. And the rabbis would point to the fabric and say, this is what God intended, that all these threads that represent your life, that they would be interconnected, interwoven, interdependent with thousands of other threads in that fabric. And in right relationship with God, in right relationship with each other, in right relationship with creation, the result is wholeness, universal flourishing, in other words, shalom. But when sin enters the world, and man's relationship with God is broken, every other relationship began to unravel, church. The fallout of sin was not just spiritual alienation, but social alienation in every other way. That's why even in our culture, we say what? The fabric of our society is what? Unraveling. Fab- Think about what we say. Think about what we say when we these are non-Christian people who say the fabric of our society is unraveling. We are literally saying our society, in every aspect, is not working the way it's supposed to. Why? Because when sin entered the world, it didn't just affect our relationship with God; it affected our relationship with each other and every part of creation. Every part of creation, economically, politically, socially, culturally, every other part of creation is broken, is shattered, and is unraveling. And what is the call on a follower of Jesus? Verse seven. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to churn away from your own flesh and blood. To share literally means, imagine rolling up your sleeve and to wait on somebody and to serve. And by that, here's what God was saying. Here's what justice, here's what working for the common good looks like. It's taking all the threads of your life, your education, your network, your resources, your time, your career. And God says, take all of that. And I want you to go to places where things are most broken. I want you to go to spaces where things are most broken. And he says, I want you to invest. Invest what, God? Invest your time there. Invest your resources there. Working for justice is not just protesting and marching. And all those are wonderful things. Working for justice says God says I've given you all kinds of things and have stewarded to you all kinds of things. Take those things and look instead of the convenient, comfortable places, look for places in which things are most broken and I want you to go and invest. Pour back in such a way that there's healing and wholeness. You know what I thought about this week? And I totally forgot about this in the nine o'clock service. You know what I thought about this week? There's a passage in Matthew. Passage in Matthew where Jesus says, 16 verse 18, Now I say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Are you familiar with this verse? You know what I realized this week? I don't think this is just a promise. I think it's an exhortation. What do I mean? Maybe... Maybe, maybe, the call of the church is to go to places where it feels like hell on earth and maybe it's the role of the church to roll back the darkness there. Maybe, It's the mission of the church to go to places where it feels like hell on earth and things are falling apart. And maybe it's the mission of the church to go to those very places and to roll back the darkness and to roll back the evil so that evil will not conquer it. Maybe that's the role of the church. Maybe the call on your life and my life to be hospitable means to go outward, find places, of darkness, where things are breaking and falling apart, and invest. Where do you get the power to do this? See, see, you can come on up. Where do you get the power to do this? Where do I get the power? Where do we possibly, you guys, get the power and the motivation to do this? Here's, we we'll go right back to Hebrews again. Verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Here's what the author Hebrews is saying. (laughs) To share what the Bible says, the way we should. To be involved in going to places where there might be hell on earth, and to fight back the darkness and the power of the Holy Spirit requires that you and I Have something happen to us internally that frees us from love of money, from love of, from worry about money, and it's deep contentment. He says there's something that happens internally to a follower of Jesus that frees you from anxiety about money, worry about money, about things. There's a deep sense of contentment.